you know, I think I, I've always been uh, environmentally conscious and mindful of it. I mean, not least of which because uh, Earth Day is my birthday. So, you know, I, I always kind of uh, had this dual celebration uh, going, uh, you know, since they stole my birthday. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, I undertook the Eco Barons book project because I um, – I just felt like the environment is the the story of our time and the most important one, and it touches everything. and uh, And that's the reason why I met a man who uh, was was the river guide who who convinced Walmart to try to be more sustainable during the course of that project, and it became my second book. and And working on both of those, waste kept surfacing as the core problem behind a lot of our. Uh, environmental and economic and energy woes. If it wasn't the direct cause, it was exacerbating the problem. And and so that led to this this idea for for garbology and exploring the you know the history and story of our our, our waste and and what the way back from it might be. So it, it was a natural progression for me. My name is Edward Humes and I am the author of Garbology: Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. That voice you heard at the top of the program belonged to Edward Humes. Mr. Humes is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of 11 books, including Eco Barons, The New Heroes of Environmental Activism, Monkey Girl, Evolution, Education, Religion, and the Battle for America's Soul, and No Matter How Loud I Shout, A Year in the Life of Juvenile Court. We spoke with Mr. Humes a short time ago about his newest book, Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Uh, Joanna, before we really get started, though, I wanted to ask you, I heard you humming a song just before we turned the microphones on. What? You heard that? Yeah, and I thought I recognized it. Oh. Well, I, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, you sound embarrassed. What, what were you humming? Well, it's kind of embarrassing because I was actually humming a children's song. You know, the one that <laughs> starts, on top of spaghetti, all covered in cheese. That's what I thought the song was. I don't know why you were humming it, but it's the perfect introduction to our interview. A song about a mountain of spaghetti is a good introduction to our interview with Edward Humes. It is, because when you think of a mountain, you don't really think of spaghetti, right? Oh, I see where you're going with this. No, you don't think about spaghetti when you think about mountains. 
Um, and you probably don't think of firecrackers, seagulls, plastic bags, and rotting meat either. No, definitely not. You think of tall and noble peaks or a peak just jutting high in the air, daring the most intrepid among us to climb. Or maybe you think of one of those scenes from Lord of the Rings where Peter Jackson pulls the camera back and you see these snow-capped mountains swooping across the screen. We started our interview with Mr. Humes talking about a mountain that doesn't exactly fall into the noble category when he recently let a camera crew up. We asked him about that trip and that unique mountain. I returned to Garbage Mountain, as, uh, as we like to call it around here. It's the largest active landfill in the U.S. It's in the Los Angeles area. Its um, official name is the Puente Hill Sanitary Landfill, and it contains approximately 130 million tons of trash. It produces enough methane from its putrefying innards to uh, supply constant electrical power to 70,000 homes. There is a power station atop the, well, near the top of Garbage Mountain. And when you stand on on top of this this fascinating but horrifying <laughs> a, a mound of trash, you are on eye level with the tallest buildings in Los Angeles. In fact, you can gaze in the distance when when the smog isn't too bad at uh, downtown, and you're pretty much as high as anything on the skyline. Now, I have to admit, I've had to climb into a dumpster before. I had lost my keys. It wasn't pleasant and wasn't really safe either. The garbage in the dumpster moved as I stepped on it. I couldn't get great footing anywhere, and I had to brace myself on the sides of the dumpster to make sure I didn't fall. And here, Ed Humes, the author we're interviewing, uh, went with the whole camera crew for a hike on a mountain of garbage. We asked Mr. Humes, among other things, if it was actually safe to climb to the top of Garbage Mountain. It is a plateau of trash. Uh, actually, um, the, the top of it could easily encompass, well, I don't know. I, the example I gave was Dodger Stadium and its vast parking lot. No problem, you consider it. On. I mean, this is, it's, it's not a little pointy peak. It's a, it is a huge structure built of trash that has been in the making for the last 50, 60 years. And you drive up it, you, as you drive, driving over the roads, the roads are built upon the older layers of trash and it takes you right to the top. And it's funny, the roads are like a roller coaster. They, they were straight level inclines when they were built, but because it's built on top of trash and depending on the type of trash in any particular spot, it compresses and settles at different rates. So the roads turned into kind of these roller coaster <laughs> experiences. Uh, it looks like a, you know, a child put this place together and it's, it's been landscaped so that it, it gives a kind of illusion that it's a real geologic feature. Um, but then there's all these, conduits bristling out of the surface to carry the methane gas out. So it's kind of like walking. If you could turn the, the ceiling of a, of a superstore <laughs> uh, down and put it on the ground, it's kind of like driving through that, that maze of pipes and conduits and stuff. That sounds just delightful. And it gets worse. The smells, the roller coaster roads, the unsafe working conditions, that's all kind of expected, right? I mean, it's a pile of trash. Mm-hmm. But one thing I didn't expect were the sounds of a garbage mountain. It's so loud that the camera crew actually had to do um, uh, several takes of the same, <laughs> same kind of comments because there's the trucks dumping things and there's constant fireworks and noisemakers being set off to drive away the seagulls because if you let the seagulls come and 
great numbers. They pick up pieces of garbage and then they fight over it in the air and they drop it on people's yards and neighborhoods around this <laughs> trash mountain. And when the noisemakers aren't enough, then there's these little predator drones, these remote controlled airplanes that go and try and chase the, the seagulls. It's quite an operation. Then they have plastic bag wranglers because plastic bags are very hard to contain and they blow and they're almost like flocks of birds on top of the, the, um, uh, trash mountain at times. So you have uh, a whole crews like chasing down plastic bags and collecting them so they don't blow away into the neighborhoods. It's, it's a, quite the carnival atmosphere of trash at times. One of the men who runs Mount Garbage goes by Big Mike. We mentioned Big Mike to Mr. Humes and Mr. Humes just instantly jumped in excited to talk about him. Oh yeah, Big Mike. He looks like a guy. He looks like a mountain himself. He's a big guy. But we didn't actually talk about Big Mike. No, but Mr. Humes described Big Mike as a sculptor of trash, which is a wonderful, beautiful description of a guy who runs a trash compactor. And it was also a great lead into a program run in San Francisco at a garbage transfer station. They actually, San Francisco has uh, at all times two uh, artists in residence at their major waste transfer station. They don't actually have a landfill within the city, but they have this huge collection point that uh, all the trash in the city goes to before it's loaded on trucks and taken to remote locations. And tremendous expense and and, and uh, greenhouse gas footprint, I might add. Uh, but so they have this artist in residence program. They've had it for many years. Uh, they're, uh, they receive a stipend. There's actually a competition to to uh, have one of the two spots there, and you and, and then you're stationed at the dump for for four months. And the goal of the program is to show that much of what we throw away and think of as having no value is actually incredible material with great potential for all kinds of repurposing and reuse. And uh, so they have all kinds of artists, musicians, sculptors, painters, uh, craftsmen. We had, uh, you know, while I was there, I interviewed a, a woman who made the complete cast of the Inferno out of uh, scrap material and created these puppets and then staged the you know, entire epic. <laughs> it was amazing. For anyone who can't remember high school English class, Dante's Inferno is part one of Dante's Divine Comedy. It tells the story of the author's trip through a medieval version of hell. And I don't know about you, but I think a huge mountain of trash, rotting and putrefying and stinking, that's pretty much a modern-day version of hell. Exactly. I mean, it was the, it was the perfect irony. And it, But the idea that behind it isn't that... that isn't just to show that trash has has a second life, but to show that we're throwing away things that really aren't trash at all. I mean, there was just another artist who who makes these soft sculptures, these sewn, embroidered works of art. They're really amazing. And so she not only recreated items, familiar items she found in the trash heaps out of her, you know, with her art, but the tools, she had to find the tools to sew with and make her art out of the trash heap. And she was really worried about this when she first arrived. She said, you mean I can't bring my, my, my sewing materials? And oh, no, no, but don't worry. The people who've been there knew if, if you need it, it will come. That was what they told her. And within a week, not one, but two of these uh, complete professional quality 
sewing kits it had obviously been like some grandmom sewing kits had showed up and it was hundreds of spools of thread that were still the spools were still made out of wood and they looked like they had been old and, and treasured and clearly what had happened is that somebody had died and and their treasure became trash and got disposed of there but it was not only perfectly usable it was beautiful and some of it was rare and she was just delighted but but it really sank that conveyed to her more than anything else that this this collection of trash was waste in its truest sense not you know it was wastefulness in action we were wasting a lot of really good things in this place i love the idea of repurposing trash into art but if you have something like garbage mountain it would take a lot of artists to go through something that large it definitely would but when you have something as big as garbage mountain you start looking at other things you can do with trash besides just repurposing it Mm. Here, let's let Mr. Humes tell this story. He has a great phrase at the beginning of this clip. There's a lot of technology in trash. Even even the creation of landfills themselves have become highly technical. But the one of the alternatives to landfilling trash is uh, burning it to make energy. And there's a new generation of these waste energy plants that uh, are growing partic- particularly popular in, in Europe. But we have some of them here. And... Um, it's not a terribly efficient way to make energy, but it is a more efficient use of materials than letting them putrefy in landfills and drawing off methane to make power that way, which is also being done. Um, you get about four times the the energy out of burning it directly and, and generating power with the, the heat that uh, that's produced through combustion than you do by landfilling trash and waiting for the methane to form. The interesting thing about that is it turns out the greenhouse gas footprint of landfills is greater than the greenhouse gas footprint of these modern waste energy plants. So some of the environmental concerns that the older uses of that technology raised have been addressed. And and it's actually, in in some ways, a a more environmentally desirable choice than, than landfilling. But of course, it's still very inefficient. The much more efficient practice is to make less waste in the first place and conserve all the energy that you expend making wasteful products. That would, that's orders of magnitude more efficient than burning the waste for, for energy. A lot of technology in trash. I love that phrase. It makes me think of Pixar's WALL-E. And besides WALL-E, that technology allows us to generate methane and electricity from landfills, and we can recycle or incinerate the raw trash that might otherwise go towards those landfills. But these things aren't too surprising. I mean, I grew up not too far from a trash incinerator. I tossed my empty soda cans in the recycling bin. I knew about this stuff before I read this book or talked to Mr. Humes. So did I, but one thing I didn't realize is that we export some of our trash. And not just some of our trash, actually, we export a lot of our Mm -hmm. trash. We export so much that one woman, Zhang Ying, became China's first female billionaire. She also earned the nickname the Queen of Trash. Yeah, I love that nickname. In the 90s, the queen of trash realized that, while China had a perennial paper and pulp shortage, we here in the U.S. threw away an incredible amount of paper products. And while China would fill container ships with goods and ship them to the U.S., those container ships would often return to China largely empty. So she started collecting and shipping waste paper, our garbage, from the U.S. back to China. As Mr. Humes put it in his book, this is kind of a classic American success story. The queen of trash started out by scrounging for garbage and ended up a billionaire. That's amazing. She took something that we were throwing out, waste that no one wanted, and built an empire out of it. Right, but she also takes waste and ships it thousands of miles. 
We asked Mr. Humes if it was good that we were getting a little bit of value out of something worthless to us, if it was bad that waste was being shipped thousands of miles. Uh, I'm going to go with the, the latter. Here's the thing. Waste has really become our top export. Uh, what we call waste. Clearly, other people say that that stuff isn't waste. It's it's got value. And you know, China is our our number one export to China is waste paper and waste scrap metal, our trash. You know, and their number one export to us is um, computers and electronics, uh, most of which are are packaged and are or are comprised of the materials that we sent over to them. So they they have a great economic model. They're buying it for pennies and selling it back to us for dollars. Of course, we're transporting it. I don't know what twelve thousand miles one way. Uh, it's, it's a pretty ridiculously inefficient way of dealing with with waste when in fact it's not obviously not waste at all um, why 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 that would be our economic model I I, I think it's irrational uh, and and certainly costly in terms of its impact on the environment and the way we're using energy um, but there are perverse incentives in our economy to be wasteful and and, and that's an example of one of them one of the things Mr. Humes touched on was the irrationality of our obsession with trash. And in his book, he wrote about how we don't really comprehend how much trash we as individuals produce each day. We asked him, if we're emptying our kitchen trash every week, shouldn't we have a pretty good idea about how much trash we produce? It, it turns out that we're very delusional about the, the trash we make. And uh, these uh, garbologists I write about in, in, uh, in the book uh, sort of did some surveys to prove it. And they compared what people thought they were throwing away with what we actually throw away. And, uh, you know, it turns out that, for instance, people consume a lot more alcohol than they think they do, and the, and the bomb <laughs> prove it. And they eat a lot less health food than they think they do, and the trash proves that, too. And uh, the fact is, if you tell people they're throwing away 7.1 pounds of trash a day, every man, woman, and child, on average, in America, they'll say, no way, no way. And it is way. That's how much trash people are throwing out. And you don't see it when you roll it to the curb because we have this very effective magic trick where the, our waste disposal companies or, or municipal waste divisions come and take it away and disappears and mischief managed. We don't have to see it. If we just kept it on our front lawn all year, we'd have 1.3 tons per person in the household on our front lawn. Then we'd see it and we'd say, holy cow. Why are we making so much trash? But we have found a way to avoid that. And that's why I start the book with a scene from a, a hoarder's house where a, a married couple has decided to stop throwing away things and they have buried themselves inside their houses. Uh, and they're trapped and actually have to be rescued. And But it turns out that aberration that we think we see their waste profile is exactly normal for <laughs> Americans. It's just that they have recognized something most of it, uh, most of us hasn't, that that stuff is actually a treasure. Now, their response is kind of, you know, a psychiatric disorder, but at least they've recognized that that stuff isn't waste at all, that it has, it has potential value, and then they decided not to part with it. So that part of the hoarder mentality we could all use a little more of. So Ed Humes just talked about hoarders as individuals who produce trash at normal levels but have a psychological disorder that results in their keeping that trash. In his book, he uses another psychological term, addiction. Mr. Humes describes our production of garbage as an addiction. We asked him what he meant. 
Well, so much of our economy has become dependent upon garbage that uh, we actually measure our, our, our prosperity by how much waste we're generating. You know, and we know we know the consumer economy is helpful if the amounts flowing into landfills goes up. Uh, and conversely, uh, when things get tighter during the recession, our, our wastefulness uh, grew uh, smaller. Uh, it's fascinating. And, and uh, unfortunately, we've confused this correlation with causation. We think being, you know, I actually had the head of the Save the Plastic Bag Coalition tell me, hey, we don't want zero waste. Zero waste means zero economy. And I thought, what? How perverse. Uh, and first I had to think about it. Is it true? You know, would it, if we stop wasting things, would we have a zero economy? And no, we'd have a different economy, <laughs> different winners, different losers. Uh, just like when plastic bags supplanted paper bags. Uh, the paper bags, you know, pr- predicted doom, uh, economic doom. Well, it kind of was economic doom for, the, for their product, but, you know, different winner emerged. So I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be true of, you know, the dispo- the, the uh, reusable bag uh, industry becomes the winner if we do away with uh, our addiction to plastic bags. So, uh, yeah, we are addicted because we've, we've come to see disposability as a virtue. Um, and that was never true in the past. And, you know, durability was always the virtue. Um, craftsmanship was the virtue. Uh, the ability to, to, ha- to repair and keep something was the virtue. And all that has slipped away. But that's, a, that, that's uh, I think, a manifestation of, of this addiction to, to the illusion of convenience and, and, and this, you know, having, having products that are disposable that are very enduring in the landfill and yet, you know, instantaneously worthless in our, in our hands, in our households. I think that's perverse. You know, if you have an addiction and you recognize you have an addiction, the next step is trying to solve your addiction. We asked Ed Humes if he thinks we'll be able to cure this addiction on our own or if we'll need help. Right. We were curious whether he thought our addiction to garbage could be cured with a bottom-up approach beginning at the individual level, or if we needed the government to step in with a top-down approach. I think it's, there has to be a sort of, uh, and it's beginning. I already think it's happening because, you know, more and more communities and, and families are seeing that there is a way back from this and there's real economic benefits to being less wasteful. So, you know, it's not all gloom and doom, but it requires a sort of flip from seeing waste as a synonym for trash uh, and then, or, or seeing it as evidence of our wastefulness. It's two different things. Nobody really wants to be wasteful. We want our trash to go away, but we don't want to waste our own resources and our money, right? So once you start seeing being trashy as, as, as throwing money away, then, then it's a very different equation. And, and then you might start looking even modestly for ways to, to save that money by being less, less wasteful. You know, and there's a lot of great places to start. A lot of businesses uh, have, have begun trying to reduce their waste. You know, Ford just announced today they've cut their landfilling by 50%. And they've, instead of, you know, when they spray paint cars, all huge amounts of paint are, are wasted. So they started capturing that. And actually, instead of sending it to land, letting it go down the drain and into tanks and landfilling it, which is what they used to do, they're um, converting it to, to fuel in, in a different kind of waste energy plant. 
Uh, and then they sort of outlined this whole series of initiatives that they have very good economic reasons for undertaking that make them less wasteful. Um, it, it's, it's very cool. There's also, you know, we, we have embedded waste in our homes. The NRDC did a study. This has just floored me that looked at vampire electronics, you know, things that never actually shut off like cable boxes. You know, you'd think you'd turn your cable box off, but if you touch it, it's still warm because it doesn't really shut off. Our televisions, all our electronics tend to always be powered in some fashion so it can be turned on instantly because we're very impatient people, I guess. If we could eliminate or control those vampire electronics across the board, it would be like we could take offline 20 coal-fired utility-scale power plants because that's how much energy is being wasted by these electronics that nobody really thinks about, knows about, cares about, or wants, has asked for. Um, That's the kind of embedded waste that, and since we're paying for that in our electric bills, that's the kind of embedded waste that we should be demanding be dealt with and eliminated. One of the things I really liked about that answer is that Mr. Humes pointed out that waste does not have to be a synonym for trash. If you break the association between waste and trash, you take a giant leap towards solving our trash problems because, as Ed pointed out, no one likes to be wasteful. We wondered, though, how far reducing our waste would take us. Mr. Humes talked about vampire electronics, recycling, and reducing our personal waste, among other efforts. But how much can this actually accomplish? Won't we make more and more garbage mountains no matter what? After we asked him that question, however, Mr. Humes came back with one question of his own. Most of what we put in landfills doesn't need to be put in landfills. And let me just tell you what some other countries are doing. Um, Can you guess how much uh, trash Germany sends to landfills? Okay, we're going to pause there. I want to admit, I have no idea what the answer to this question was. I didn't either, and... I was really surprised Mr. Humes told us the answer. Uh, zero. <laughs> they, recycle, they recycle 66% of their um, waste, and they make energy out of the other 34%, and they have, less, you know, they have negligible, virtually zero landfilling. Uh, the Netherlands, 1% landfilling, 60% recycling, composting, 39% incineration. Some of the balances are different. Denmark... They're big on waste energy. They uh, almost half their trash is used for uh, waste to energy. They became essentially energy independent through waste to energy, wind, and and some offshore oil exploration. They were in the same boat we were in terms of percentage of imported energy in the 70s during the oil embargo, and they decided this was their solution. So they only landfill 4% of their trash. Uh, the Japanese uh, have a much better balance too, and they their per person waste figure is two and a half pounds per person, and that's a highly developed consumer culture, and they make a third of the amount of trash per person that we do. Um, so obviously, there's some lessons we can learn on how to do it better, and it's certainly possible to do it in a less wasteful fashion. Uh, the U.S. is a real outlier on this this front. I mean, we're down there with. Lithuania and Bulgaria in terms of how much waste we we land, though, if you want to look at the countries that are comparable to us. Listening to that and hearing about the trash and landfill habits of other countries, it's a really hopeful thing, right? I mean, there are definitely ways to reduce our waste, produce less trash, and better utilize the trash we do produce. But it's also a bit disappointing because we don't consistently do these things while the countries Mr. Humes mentioned have been practicing these efforts for decades. 
We asked Mr. Humes why we're so far behind. Well, part of it is habit. Part of it is perception. I mean, we have we are habitual wasters. Uh, we also America is blessed with enormous amounts of land uh, that uh, many of these other nations are not. So land filling, be, uh, they, they started running out of space for it and turned to other solutions. Well, you know that's not our problem. We can always find a hole <laughs> or a place for a mountain uh, for our trash and and do. But that doesn't make it a a, a really good economic or environmental strategy. It just makes it the hey, doing it the way we always did. Um, but the fact is that some of these other options have much more economic and environmental benefits. Um, again, it's it's recognizing them and perhaps providing some incentives. I mean, we 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 are subsidizing a lot of trash right now. We subsidize junk mail, which is more than half our our mail now. <laughs> We, we, we uh, you know, consumers are subsidizing the bottled water industry, which is just an insanely wasteful product that has no value, except to the people who make it and sell it. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're a little crazy about waste. And again, that's, I, I, I call that an addiction. And, and like any addiction, the first step to getting over it is recognizing it and seeing it. So maybe that's you know, what we're trying to do here a little bit. So breaking our addiction will require that we change our habits. Unfortunately, changing habits might be hard. As Mr. Humes pointed out, we live on a big, spacious continent. We can easily find space for another garbage mountain and another one and another one. And we can build these mountains in places where we don't really see them. Again, Mr. Humes pointed out this magic trick our society is capable of, where we put trash on the corner outside of our homes and it disappears almost as soon as we put it there. But Mr. Humes also said we have to change our perceptions about trash. This goes back to the difference between waste and trash. And it continues when we realize that there aren't just environmental reasons to reduce our trash production habits. There are economic benefits to both individual peoples and society as a whole to reducing our trash footprint. As more and more of us realize this, we will hopefully see our usage patterns change. The first step to getting over our garbage problem is seeing and recognizing that there is a problem. With that in mind, we wondered how Mr. Hume's research has changed his garbage habits. We asked him whether he was recycling more and using less. Well, I think I was already doing some of that, but it's sort of made me even more conscious that there's a lot of other opportunities we missed. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to uh, uh, use the, uh, the, the reusable bags and uh, when we go to the grocery store so we've we've taken steps to reduce our 500 bag habits you know that were the bag monster uh, phenomena and uh, we've been composting and growing vegetables uh, with the compost for for quite some time now that's so we have no uh, food waste in our our waste stream and that's you know that's I don't know, something like 15% of the, what goes to landfills is food waste. So we've knocked that out. And, uh, you know, we stopped buying bottled water, and, uh, but we still have we, we still have a good amount that goes in the recycling bin. And recycling is, you know, not that great a solution. It's better than, it, it's the better than nothing solution, but refusing and repurposing and, uh, and reusing are, are much more efficient solutions than, than recycling. But again, it's better than nothing. So we try to be consistent on that too. So, and it's not hard. It's easy. It's easy to stick a, stick a reusable bag in your, in your pocket and go to the store. You know? mm -hmm. It's also easy to leave it in your car, unfortunately. So you, you gotta watch out for that. But 
because it's the worst of both worlds. If you buy the reusable bag and then don't use it, then you've really got a double whammy on your, your carbon footprint. So you've actually got to use it, not just buy it. You may remember back at the beginning of the show that our guest mentioned that his birthday fell on Earth Day. We had one last question for Mr. Humes. We asked him what he did for his Earth Day birthday. It was great. I was actually at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books on uh, on a panel entitled Disposable Nation. So it was it was perfect timing, and uh, uh, and then uh, uh, enjoyed the evening with with my family to to celebrate both Earth Day and uh, and my birthday. So it was fun. It was enjoyable. That was our interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ed Humes about his new book Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. And I gotta say, Joanna, that was probably my favorite interview that we've done. Yeah, Ed was really great on the phone, and I think he liked the interview, too. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. I guess that's it for the show today. So if you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. The Grok Science Radio Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to pursue a social interaction in email form, you can email us at science at groks.net. So thanks for listening to us today, and if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For the Grox Science Radio Show and Elise Kovic, Franklin, Charles Lee, and Forrest Golden, who's right here. Hi. I'm Joanna Rowell. 